Welcome back to the Hemingway List podcast, talking about hail and farewell, um, and reading some hail and farewell. So we finished chapter three, BYO discussion prompts. I had nothing to say about chapter three. Um, hey, Swim's back. Swim, said the moment she said, the reading today was a yawn. I wonder who George's audience was for hail and farewell. Maybe at this point it didn't matter to him. The novel, East of Waters, was a bestseller that left him financially comfortable. There have been some passages I've enjoyed so far. So far, it's not as annoying as The Enormous Room. At least The Enormous Room had a plot, you know. Um, TechRific says, yeah, I have to admit, we're probably facing diminishing returns going forward. I guess we could see this as an experiment in memoir writing, but it certainly isn't Pippi's diary, that's for sure. I got George Moore's biography in the mail, says Swim. In Adrian Fraser's intro, he pretty much says this very thing. Ha. Huh. A broken clock is correct twice a day, says Techrific. Okay, so. <laughs> oh dear. No one likes this book so far. Um, well, actually, not true. There's been some good passages. And some people have said they like it. But. Um, yeah. I don't know. We power through. We're doing it, you know. At this point, let me put it this way. Let me think about it this way. At this point, for me, it's not about reading this book. It's about finishing. It's about reading the Hemingway list, right? And this is our final obstacle, our final hurdle. And then we can say we've done it. So, chapter four. And I'm not going to read much tonight, by the way, just to make matters worse, because I'm pretty sure we've got COVID in our house now. We did COVID tests because our daughter, we went to a theme park today, um, water park. Daughter said she's got a sore throat on the way home. Did COVID tests and it was so faint, the line, that we're like, so faint. That we're like, are we imagining a line? And then we're like, these are pretty old tests. They'd be over a year old. All the rest, so... And then we did, so we did another test, and that one was negative. So, I don't know. We might have COVID in the house. Probably do, because, I mean, sore throat and a positive test. No matter how faint the line is, they say it's a positive, right? Anywho. Let us read. Chapter 4. I read an historic entertainment in the appearance of the waiters. They were more clean and spruce and watchful than usual. The best shirts had been ordered from the laundry. Every buttonhole held its stud. Shoes had been blacked scrupulously. And the head waiter, a tall, thin man, confident in his responsibilities, pointed out the way to the cloakroom and in subdued voice, <laughs> excuse me, told us that we should find Mr. Gill in the anteroom. We had found him receiving his guests blithe and alert as a bird in the springtime. All his seriousness had vanished from him. He stroked his beard and he laughed, and his eye brightened as he told us of his successes. The extreme ends of Dublin had yielded to his persuasiveness, and under the same roof tree that night, Trinity College and the Gaelic League would dine together. Hyde was coming, and John O'Leary, the Finian leader, was over yonder. And looking through the evening coats and shirt fronts, I caught sight of the patriarchal beard that had bored me years ago in Paris, for John would talk about Ireland when I wanted to talk about Ingress and Cabanel. All the same, I went to him and ang- 
He angered me for the last time by asking for news of Marshall. My friend in the confessions, instead of speaking to me about the Gaelic literary movement, as tedious as ever, I said, escaping from him and seeing nobody who might amuse me, I returned to Gil to reproach him for not having asked his guests to bring their females with them. At these public repasts there is nothing to distract our eyes from the food but the eternal feminine, and when that is absent the eternal masculine confronts us shamelessly in his office clothes, and looking around I said to myself not an opera hat among them, and lowering my eyes I noticed that some of the men had not even taken the trouble to change their shoes, perhaps they haven't even changed their socks, and to pass the time away I began to wonder how it was that women could take any faint interest in men. Every kind seemed present, men with bellies and without, men with hair on their heads, bald men, short-legged men, long-legged men, but looking up and down the long tables I could not find one that might inspire passion in a woman. No one even looked as if he would like to do such a thing. And with this sad thought in my head I sought for my chair and found it next to a bald obese professor, with Yeats on the other side, next to Gill. At the head of the table, it is always nice to see dear Edward, and he was not far away on Gill's left hand, as happy as a priest at a wedding. Yet, he sat, chewing his cud of happiness, a twig from the feather field, slightly triumphant, I thought, over Yeats, whose Countess Kathleen had not been received quite so favourably. Beside me on my right was a young man, clean-shaven and demure, with his, the upper lip was long, but the nose and eyes and forehead were delicately cut, like a cameo, and his bright auburn hair was brushed over his white forehead, making a line that a girl might have envied if she were inclined to that style of coiffure. He answered my questions, but he answered them somewhat dryly. Yeats would not speak, but sat all profile like a drawing on an Egyptian monument, thinking his speech and it was not until we had eaten the soup and the fish and a glass of champagne had been drunk that I discovered the young man at my right elbow to be full of information about the people present. The very person I said I need, in, I stand in need of, and that is why Gil Paul put him next to me. So I began to speak of our host, of his kind and genial nature. My young friend knew him, he was one of the writers of on the Express, and seemed to be much amused at my story of Gill's plan to introduce continental culture into Dublin. As we talked of Gill, our eyes went towards him, and we admired in silence, thinking how like he was to some portraits we had seen in the Louvre, or in the National Gallery, we were not sure which. Bellini, I think. My young friend had some knowledge of the art of painting, for he corrected me, saying that Giorgione was the first designer of that round brow, shaded by pretty curling hair. I believe you're right, I said. It was he who started the fashion for a certain wisdom which Gill seems to have caught admirably, and which, though enhanced by it, is not dependent upon the beauty of a blonde and highly trimmed beard. Did you see a portrait of Gill done before he grew his beard? I answered that I had not seen it, surprised a little by the question. My young friend smiled. He rarely shows that photograph now. Perhaps he has destroyed it. But at what are you smiling? Well, you see, he answered, Gill was nothing before he grew his beard. His face is so thin and falls away up at the chin so quickly that no one credited him with any deep and commanding intelligence. The round 
prettily drawn eyes have nothing to recommend them. One couldn't call them crafty eyes. My young friend smiled, but as I was about to ask him why he was smiling, Gill addressed some remarks to me over Yeats's head. Disturbing, I feared some wondrous array of imagery collecting in the poet's mind. The professor I had perforce to fall back upon, and I succeeded in engaging his attention with a remark regarding Tennyson's proneness to write the sentiment of his time rather than the ideas of all time. But his language is always so exquisite, you must know the line, something you know, doves murmuring in a memorial elms, not since Milton, and I am not sure that I don't prefer Tennyson's imagery. Excepting that immortal line blazed in the forehead of the morning sky. Give me, said the professor, the sublime diction. You can have all the rest, the sentiments, the ideas, the thoughts, all. You remember that wonderful line when he addresses Virgil? That, that, I waited for the rare adjective, that excellent line. The waiter interposed a bottle between us. This excellent wine goes very well with the entree. It was then called into the conversation which Gill was holding with Edward, regarding the necessities of founding a school of acting, and I found myself free to return to the young gentleman on my right. You mentioned just now that Gill's beard was the origin of Gill. Lowering his voice, my young neighbour said, I'm afraid the story is difficult to tell here. Nobody's listening, everybody's engaged in different conversations. Gill is not very strong and has often to go away in quest of health. It was in Paris that it happened. We were interrupted many times by the waiters, and our neighbours, seeing that we were amused, sought to share our amusement. All the same, the young man succeeded in telling me how, at the end of a long convalescence, Gill had entered a barber shop, his beard neglected, growing in patches thicker on one side of the face than the other. He fell wearily into a chair, murmuring la barbe, and exhausted by illness and the heat of the saloon. He did not notice for some time that no one had come to attend upon him. The silence at last awoke him out of the lethargy of light and doze into which he had slipped, and looking around it seemed to him that his dream had come true, that the barber had gone, that he was alone, for some reason unaccountable in the shop. A little alarmed, he turned in his chair, and for a moment could find nobody. The barber had retreated to the steps leading to the lady's salon. Whence he could study his customer intently as a painter might a picture. As Gill was about to speak, the barber struck his brow, saying, Style Henry Quatre, and drew his scissors from the pocket of his apron. Gill does not remember experiencing any particular emotion while his beard was being trimmed. It was not until the barber gave him the glass that he felt the sudden transformation, felt rather than saw, for the transformation effected in his face was little compared with that which had happened in his soul. In the beginning was the beard, and the beard was with God, who in this case happened to be a barber, and glory be to the Lord and to his shears that a statesman of the Renaissance walked that day up the Champs Elysees, his thoughts turning, and we think not unnaturally towards Machiavelli. A Catholic Machiavelli is not possible, nor an Alexander the Sixth, a Caesar Borgia, nor Julius the Second. But if one is possessed of the sense of compromise. Difficulties can be removed, and Gill's alembicated mind soon discovered that it was possible to conceive Machiavelli with all the great statements, statesmen, 
bad qualities removed and the good retained. As he walked, it seemed to him all the learning of his time had sprung up in him. He found himself like the great men of the 16th century, well versed in the arts of war and peace, a patron of the arts and sciences. But at that moment, reality thrust forward, shattering his dream. Gill had been an active nationalist, that is to say, he had driven about the country on outside cars, occasionally stopping at crossroads to tell little boys to throw stones at the police. In other words, he had been a campaigner and had felt that he was serving his country by being one. But since he had set eyes on his new beard, the conviction quickened for him that he would be able to serve his country much better by dispensing his prodigal wisdom than by engaging in the rough-and-tumble fights of party politics. The inside of jails were well enough for such simple minds as David and O'Brien, but not for a mind grown from a Henry Quartre beard, and remembering the celebrated saying of him who had worn the beard for 400 years ago, Paris veut bien un mess gil muttered in his beard, la barbe veut mieux que la plume. About the time of Gill's beard, Horace Plunkett was engaged in laying the, foundry, the foundations of what he believed to be a great social reformation in Ireland. But Plunkett, Gill's reflected as walked gaily with an alert step and brightening eye, did not know Ireland. A Protestant can never know Ireland intimately. Such was Gill's conviction, and there was the still deeper conviction that he was the only man who could advise Plunkett and save him from the many pitfalls into which he was sure to tumble. All that Plunkett required was something of the genial spirit of the Renaissance, again beguiled by the delicious temptation Gill paused in his walk. Plunkett could not associate himself with one who had been engaged in the plan of campaign. The plan had faded with the trimming of his beard, and he could hardly believe that he had been connected with it, except, indeed, as a romantic incident, in his career, the only difficulty, if it were a difficulty, was to find a means of explaining his repudiation of the plan satisfactorily. The Irish atmosphere is dense, and to tell the people that it had all gone away with the shaggy ends of his beard would hardly satisfy them. But in Ireland there is always our holy mother of the church, and the church had quite lately condemned the plan. Gill is a faithful son of the church, of course, of course. The error into which he had fallen had gone with the shaggy beard, and with his trimmed beard and his trimmed soul, Gill appeared in Dublin henceforth, henceforth known to his friend as Tom the Trimmer. An excellent story that probably started from some remark of Gill's and was developed as it passed from mouth to mouth, a piece of folk. If a story be told three or four times by different people, it becomes a folk. You have, no doubt, stories of the same kind about everybody. Alright, I'm going to stop there. Um, I'll call that part one of chapter four. Thank you very much for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.